A.W. Pierce and Company. Offer for sale. A general assortment of merchandise. Four, shipping and local requirements. Comprising cotton and hemp duck from zero to ten. Hemp and manila cordage, all sizes. Hemp and cotton twine. Spun yarn. Marlin. House line. Seizing stuff. Cutting falls. Whale line. Blocks of all sizes. Patent. Iron strapped and bushed. Three to fifteen inches. Jib hanks and mast hoops. Sheaves. Bushed and patent. Hooks and thimbles. Connecting shackles. Boat timbers. Stems and sterns. Boat boards. Oars of all lengths. Row locks. Bushings. Steering braces. Beat nails. Wrought nails. Cut nails. Rivets of all sizes. Paints of all kinds. Linseed. Kerosene. Whale and sperm oils. Tar. Bright varnish. Pump and rigging leather. Copper and iron tacks. Bread, flour, beef, and pork. Preserved meats. Pig fruits, pickles, green corn and peas, spices, and various other groceries. Also, brands, bomb lances, Pierce's whaling guns, table, dairy, and coarse salt from the Puloa Salt Works, Perry Davis and Sons Palm Killer, and various other merchandise carefully selected from the California, Eastern, and European markets. Orders from the other islands carefully attended to. I the air with the greatest of A daring young man on the dying Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 39 the real episode 39, unlike that dumb old fake episode 39 that you heard last week. Yeah, that was a slip of the tongue. Tonight's tea is my all-time favorite. Of course, favorite depends on the vicissitudes of the moment. I have no idea what factors play into why my palate craves McNulty's Russian style one day and then uh, a straight-up Lapsang Sushong the next day, but here we are. I thought I would share my favorite, which is Yunnan Sourcing's Black Gold Bailuochon tea tonight. Mm. Oh, God damn, that is so good. It is probably the most chocolatey tea I've ever had. It's got all these wonderful roasted 
undertones that I love so. It's got a nice, almost woody snap to it. Essentially, it's everything that I loved back when I drank beer, uh, 10 plus years ago now. And uh, I want you to go to the show notes because I posted some pictures. The lovely curl of this tea is an absolute delight, and you can see it side by side with the Yunnan sourcing black gold, in other words, the non-Bailuochun version. The Bailuochun just signifies the way that it's prepared and and curled into these uh, wonderful tight little uh, balls. Uh, The Black Gold and the Black Gold Bailo Chun are two of my all-time favorites. I would say, uh, as an analogy, it's a little bit like, say, the difference between a stout and an imperial stout, but the difference is nowhere near that pronounced. I mean, the plain old Black Gold is a stunning tea uh, on its own, and uh, it's way better even than most of the other Yunnan teas that I love so much. I mean, it's it's one of the, the best I've ever had. Uh, so the black gold is, say, halfway between your average Yunnan tea and the Bailoa Chun. And so let's say the, the black gold is halfway between a stout and an imperial stout, and the Bailoa Chun is the imperial stout. Uh, it's magnificent. Mm-hmm. Multi, full, lush, complex, robust, and a steal at the price. Now, if you're a cheapskate like me and you don't want to pay for the fast shipping, you're going to wait three or four months uh, to get it from Yunnan. But that's all to the good. I love the anticipation. I ordered this in October, got it in uh, early February, middle of winter. Perfect time for an unexpected tea shipment. I could not be more pleased with this. So, tonight, I'm going to continue with my series on Syracuse salt. But first, this brief word from our sponsor. George L. Joy, General Agent, Ohio River and Kanawa Salt Companies. Number 9, North 2nd Street, St. Louis, Missouri. These companies make the best salt in use. Over 99% pure salt. Packers use it. It keeps their meat. Dairymen use it. It preserves butter. Stock raisers use it. It goes farthest. Farmers and housekeepers use it. The best for all domestic purposes. Cooperage unequaled. No broken barrels and wasted salt. We now return to our show. So why am I talking about salt and tariffs? What on earth would possess me to waste my time doing a podcast about something so impossibly boring? Here's the thing. I've been thinking a lot about this lately as I've pored over newspapers from 150 years ago especially, and I'm seeing all these articles about street paving and the different options for that. Uh, sewers, sidewalks, 
stuff that is so boring that it's almost uh, iconically boring. Like if you were writing a comedy skit and you wanted to have a character that was just ridiculously into boring stuff, you'd have them talk about the crap that I'm doing this podcast about. What would possess me to do this? Well, here's the thing. If you study historical newspapers for a couple of years, you will probably find yourself at the same inversion point at which I found myself, the point at which suddenly the impossibly boring stuff becomes the most interesting stuff. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's not an exaggeration to say, let's say a portion of the very most boring stuff becomes the most interesting stuff. Now, the fire material that I covered in several episodes is the perfect example. Like I said in that, in that episode about uh, the fire, every stinking article ends with this tabulation of the amount lost and how much was covered by insurance, yada, yada, yada. And the very reason that your brain just shrieks to gloss over that stuff and ignore it is the same reason why it ends up being historically important. It's because it's boring to us here, now, in the future. But here's the thing. Those newspaper men didn't put boring stuff in their column space. They filled column space with material that they thought would put eyeballs on ads, period. That means there's an enormous gulf between what people at the time thought was boring and what we think is boring. Therein lies a fruitful investigation. In the case of fire, it's, wow, these people were terrified of and overwhelmingly preoccupied with fire and how to deal with it. Now, in the case of tariffs and specifically salt, why am I interested? Well, let's go back to two episodes ago. After I dropped that episode, I had a conversation with my friend April, and she said, well, don't some people today find the issues of tariffs versus uh, protection and free trade uh, really important? And I said, yeah, absolutely, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying nobody thinks this is important. I, I acknowledge that for some people, this might be the most important issue defining their, their politics. But the way I see it, after having been immersed in these newspapers for six years, it's impossible for me to overstate the degree to which the axis of free trade, capital F, capital T, versus protection was an ideological axis that so foundationally defined the thought of that time that it's difficult to even understand from our perspective. And I finally figured out a great uh, comparison to illustrate my impression. The 19th century is to protection versus free trade as the late 20th and early 21st centuries are to personal responsibility versus social cushion. 
Think about that. I'm talking everything that spins off from that ideological axis of personal responsibility versus the social cushion. All of the images that become so formative and so near and dear to our very way of looking at the world and the way of the, way, the ways in which we define ourselves. People beat their chests about how they're self-made. Never mind that we are living on a 12,000 layer bean dip of infrastructure that took two centuries to cast in lovingly layered veneers of insurance companies and roads and town councils and fire equipment. And um, I know I keep going back to fire, but that's the clearest example for me. My point is that when you get up in the morning and go out the door, you're walking and riding and being healthy and existing on that 12,000 layer bean dip of infrastructure and the reason you don't think about it is because trillions of people over 200 years uh, contributed to it. And you've got people squawking about how they're self-made and how they didn't uh, get any handouts and other people do and that is a that is a showstopper for them. And we've all heard the stories about these people who, once it comes time for them to take a handout, oh, that, that's different. That's, that's, that situation is exceptional. For some reason, they deserve the social cushion. The 19th century was exactly that, but for protectionism, versus free trade. All of those layers of exceptions and hypocrisy and just nonsense, non, uh, the way people viewed it, there were so many exceptions to the rule that it really, it was not a coherent ideology for a lot of people. It was just a means of identifying oneself in opposition to the other. Uh, for instance, if you were, say, in uh, Ohio's Western Reserve, and you were on one side of that ideolo ideological axis. Say you were a rabid free trade person or a, a rabid protectionist. Your actions might fly in the face of that purported ideology if there happened to be a federally funded project in the works for a railroad or a road or a canal through your area. You see the parallel I'm drawing? I hope that's clear because I, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to come up with a better, uh, more uh, resonant comparison than this. I think that free trade versus protection was so foundational to 19th century ideology that it is a, an entirely reasonable comparison to make to today's obsession with this uh, defining ideology of personal responsibility versus having a social cushion. So, that's me trying to make something impossibly boring interesting, and it's futile. 
right? Because I can't explain to you why you should find it interesting. I can only share my enthusiasm with you. And this is practice. Uh, this is me putting in the hours and, again, hopefully it's not going to suck for too long. But, you know, like I said, it's it's got to suck for a while before it has any chance of, of getting good. So hopefully I can figure out eventually how to host this information and make it compelling and uh, hopefully people will want to listen. Until then, uh, I welcome your input. Uh, tell me what you think. I, I feel pretty strongly about reading these articles in their entirety because I want to give you the, the integrity of the entire article because, again, these are pieces that newspaper editors thought were worthy of filling their precious column space. They thought this would drive eyeballs to ads. Keep that in mind. This was published in the Clearfield Republican of Clearfield, Pennsylvania, 150 years ago this week, May 24th, 1871. Words of Soberness and Truth General Brinkerhoff on Free Trade and Protection a notice of some of the principal facts and arguments set forth by General Brinkerhoff in his lecture at the courthouse on Wednesday evening was promised. General Brinkerhoff commenced by asserting the importance of this subject to the American people. In it, the material prosperity of the country was involved to a greater extent than in any other political question now agitating the public mind. Damn, this tea is good. You guys got to try this. By free trade was not meant the removal of all duties on imports, but the levying of duties on a strictly revenue basis. The motto of the free trader was, millions for revenue, not a cent for protection. In regulating the tariff, the first thing to be done was to trace the duties levied and see where they go to. If they go into the coffers of the government, then the principle upon which the tariff is based is a sound and just one. The only thing further to be observed is that no more revenue is raised than is absolutely necessary, and that the wealth of the country be made to pay its full proportion. If the tax, or any considerable portion of it, instead of going into the public treasury, goes into the pockets of a few favored individuals or classes, the principle is unsound and unjust, and should be abandoned at once. General Brinkerhoff asserted it as incontrovertibly true that, as a general rule, the duty levied upon an imported product enhanced the price of both the imported commodity and the home product with which it came in competition to the extent of the duty levied. In proof of this, he quoted the price of iron in this country for a series of years past under both high and low tariffs showing that the price had invariably gone up as the duty had been increased and gone down as the duty had been diminished. So, two of other commodities, such as salt, etc., to which he referred by way of illustration. To this rule, there were exceptions, but they were easily explained. 
To show how grossly the present tariff violated the fundamental principle upon which all tariffs ought to be adjusted, viz., the simple purpose of raising revenue for the government, the Speaker referred to a few of the taxed commodities by way of example. And first, lumber, which was an article of prime necessity and of which the people of Iowa were compelled to purchase nearly their entire supply. The duty on lumber is 20% ad valorem. Taking the census of 1860 as a basis and allowing for a fair rate of increase, the annual consumption of lumber in the United States might be safely estimated at $200 million, but to avoid all cavil, he would place it at $150 million. A tax of 20% on this is $30 million yearly. Official returns show that the revenue which the government collects on imported lumber is only about $600,000 a year. Of the tax levied on lumber by the existing tariff, the people pay one-half million of dollars yearly to the government and 29 and a half millions of dollars to the owners of lands from which come our lumber supplies. On pig iron, another article of prime necessity, there is a duty of $9 per ton. The annual consumption of pig iron in the United States is 2 million tons. Tax, $18 million. Of this tax, only a little over 1 million goes into the Treasury, 17 million into the pockets of the iron masters. With bar and railroad iron, it is the same. On three classes of iron named, the country pays a tax of $45 million annually, only $5 million of which goes into the Treasury. Of the other $40 million, Pennsylvania gets fully two-thirds. Of leather, the annual consumption is $124 million, tax $10 million, of which the government gets two and a half millions. Seven and a half millions goes to the account of protection. Coal is taxed $1.25 per ton. Government gets no revenue because the duty on coal is so high that it prohibits importation. But the people of New England and other seaboard regions pay from $12 million to $20 million a year. In consequence of the restrictions, excuse me, restrictions imposed by the government upon the importation of Nova Scotia coal. Hugh here, breaking in. Speaking of breaks, we need to take an ad break. George L. Joy, General Agent. Oh, I'm sorry, I already read that ad. Well, yep, I was wrong. I was trying to very smoothly insert that, thinking that I had forgotten it, and I didn't forget it. So now I uh, spilled my milk in fearing for it to be spilt. <laughs> Anyway, all right, back to the article. Here we go with the salt bit. On salt, the duty is 18 cents per bushel bulk, 24 cents per bushel in bags. This gives the Onondaga Salt Company, here we go on Syracuse again, a monopoly of the market because the importation of all the grades of salt manufactured by them is prohibited. Not a barrel of salt can be purchased at their salt works for less than $2.35 per barrel, yet this same company send their salt to Toronto and other Canadian ports 
and there sell it after paying a freight and all other charges for $1.60 per barrel, thus showing that they not only need no protection against competition from that quarter or any other, but that they can undersell Canadian salt manufacturers in their own market. The Onondaga Company, on a capital of only $160,000, have been enabled under the present tariff to reap dividends amounting to many millions, a more outrageous instance of plundering the masses of the people for the benefit of a few individuals is not to be found in the legislative history of any country. General Brinkerhoff then proceeded to show how the existing tariff discriminated against the poorer classes. Woolen cloths, Carpets, blankets, shawls, etc., etc., were cited as examples, in all of which the coarser articles used by the poor are taxed much higher than those of a finer and more costly material. One striking feature of our present tariff, he said, was the great number of articles upon which duties were levied. The list numbered over 4,000 presenting a striking contrast to the tariff of Great Britain, which raises an annual revenue of $120 million in gold from 14 articles alone. In reference to our own tariff, he stated that one half of our revenue was derived from 10 articles, that three-quarters or $140 million came from 13 articles, that this latter amount, with such internal taxes as should be retained, would be amply sufficient to meet all the legitimate wants of the government and leave a surplus of $25 million a year to be applied to the principal of the national debt, that the duties should be retained on these articles alone, viz. tea, coffee, sugar, molasses, spices, fruits, wines, spirits, tobacco, glass, silk, linen, tin, furs, gloves of skin, nuts, sardines, chocolate, opium, and licorice and abolished on all else. He argued that the tax should be retained on tea, coffee, and sugar, because every dollar of it goes into the treasury. From these three articles alone, the revenue is $52 million a year, and yet the expense to each individual consumer does not exceed $1.50 yearly. A man pays that much tax on every pair of boots that he buys, and on a suit of clothes he pays as much tax as a family of half a dozen persons would pay on their tea, coffee, sugar, and molasses for a whole year. Referring to the rapid decline in our commercial marine, General Brinkerhoff said that since the present tariff went into operation, our shipping has decreased at the rate of half a million of tons yearly. Of the 125 great steamships that traversed the Atlantic, not one carried the American flag. In 1860, there were employed in the New York shipyards 20,000 skilled mechanics and 1,000 apprentices. Now the number does not exceed 500. To expose the fallacy of the home market argument of the protectionists, he showed that the great protected industries of the country, iron, cotton, and woolen manufacturers, gives employment to only 360,000 persons, including women and children. He said if each of these persons were a man and consumed an average of $150 agricultural products a year, the aggregate consumed by them all would not equal 4% of the aggregate agricultural 
productions of the country, and were they all swept out of existence, the effect on the price of wheat would not be visible. Nearly the entire work of the great manufacturing establishments connected with these industries is performed by machinery, and to talk of drawing to them, through the agency of the tariff laws, a sufficient number of operatives to consume our surplus agricultural products is the climax of absurdity. The present protective tariff has been in operation ten years, and we are no nearer a home market now than at the commencement. While, therefore, the tariff does not and cannot, in the very nature of things, benefit the agriculturalist by increasing the price of his products, it works him great injury by increasing the cost of production and the cost of transporting his commodities to market. The cost of railroad construction is increased to the extent of $2,500 per mile by the duties upon railroad iron alone. This increase, increased cost of construction is made up to railroad companies in increased rates for passenger fare and freights. Hence, the effect of the tariff is to compel the farmer to pay more for everything that he buys and receive less for everything he sells. To him, protection is a two-edged sword that cuts both ways. He is first taxed to protect the manufacturing interests against the, quote, pauper labor of Europe, Unquote, and he is then left to compete with that same pauper labor of the pauper's own ground. Yet in the face of all these facts, so apparent to the common sense of every man, there are thousands of farmers who, sl sling, who sing hosannas to protection and swear by Horace Greeley as its prophet. There are other points in the excellent lecture of General Brinkerhoff which are well worthy of notion, of notice, but want of space compels us to forego further comment. Historic headlines will return after this message. Liverpool salt afloat. 5,000 hogsheads, per bark Adelaide Norris, also in hand, Cadiz, Turks Island, and Syracuse, for sale low by E.G. Willard, 14 Commercial Wharf. And we're back. Now here's where I really put forth my strongest argument for the ideological axis of free trade versus protection as being utterly foundational to 19th century, not just politics, but ideology and uh, self-identification. Syracuse, in this article, is important not just nationally, but globally. This is from the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, a few months previous to that last article. This is from February 15, 1871. Again, this is Sydney, Australia. The stronghold of protection is in the innate selfishness of man 
And this selfishness, which builds up barriers between different sections of the human family, whose lot, by the physical conformation of the globe, happens to be cast upon the same plateau or the same watershed, it is the great achievement of civilization to overcome. It is necessary to wait patiently for the process of enlightenment. Men cannot be pushed beyond the measure of their light, and those who are in advance must await the tardier footsteps of their fellows. It is true that many men sacrifice real interests to passions. Thus, Perseus knew better how to keep his money than his country. He may, therefore, be said to have resembled a merchant who loses all in a tempest, rather than cast a part of his cargo into the sea. To lose a part to save the whole is a policy beyond the capacity of ninety-nine persons out of a hundred, all or nothing. To be a child, in their estimation, is far better than being a man. We admit that the science of politics is essentially experimental. Not like the axioms of and definitions of the geometer of intrinsic truth, uninfluenced by time and place, but depending on experience, and therefore as changing as the circumstances on which all experience is founded. But this concession by no means prepares the way for the allowance of protection, for that which is the policy of a barbaric or medieval state has been tried, and is no more fitted to the manhood of states than their baby shoes are for the adults of the present day. If our experience is to change, let the change be to something new. And an unshackled trade is a far newer thing than any of the false forms of protection, question mark, now in vogue in Victoria, America, and elsewhere. Little, however, can be expected from any legislature whose bond of union is not the public good, founded on the principles of justice, truth, and sound humanity. This knack of sacrificing great interests not only to small but even to diminutive ones, is abundantly illustrated. Henry VIII permitted Spain and Portugal to engross the East and West Indies and neglected even the discoveries of Cabo in order to establish an improbability on the continent. William III was unmindful of the internal polity of his kingdom that he might the more effectually watch over the schemes of contending nations. George I and George II laid themselves open to the censure of Britain by entertaining too great a partiality to Hanover, and George III suffered him himself to be divested of part of a fine empire rather than waive concessions that would have preserved the integrity of the whole. Subsequently to this, instead of insisting upon his ministers operating on a large scale for great interests, he permitted them to carry his arms against islands in the West Indies, which were gained not for permanent possession, but merely as equivalents to restore. Hence, a lady was much admired for having said to Mr. Pitt, on hearing that one or two islands had surrendered in the West Indies, I protest, Mr. Pitt, if you go on thus, you will soon be master of every island in the world except two, England and Ireland. It may similarly be said that the protectionists, hatters and glovers and clothiers and ironworkers, etc., if they were allowed their own way, would soon sever our connection with the rest of the world from a desire to compel us to buy their craftsware, however inferior and dear it might be. 
There is a lack of wisdom evidenced in the attempt to return to the old world policy of a restrictive tariff in this colony when we see its ill effects elsewhere. In Victoria, there are signs of a disposition to change, and in America, trade is sick of an internal complaint from which we shall suffer before long if the new treasurer has his will of us. The enmities of the protective tariff system are arousing a powerful party in the United States who have organized a free trade league and are prepared with the vigor of American partisans to carry their flag to victory. They propose to reach free trade not in a single jump but by gradual approaches, beginning the war upon Syracuse salt, Pennsylvania pig iron, and Ohio wool. The New England, South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama cotton mills are to be attacked after these outworks of protection are carried. There are, however, in the states, two divisions in the free trade army, one that requires free trade, pure and simple, another that yearns for revenue reform, of which we have occasionally made mention in times past. Both are earnest and are not forgetful that success much depends upon securing the suffrages of the new elements of population, the black brother, people with whom life was a little time since only hog, hominy, and molasses, have suddenly become deeply interested in taxation, and, unless specially informed, are liable to be induced to favor a policy which sacrifices a large ultimate for a small, immediate advantage. The strength of free trade is in the West. The people there want cheap iron, lumber, and coal, and their brethren of the East desire to make them believe it is best for the country to buy it dear of them, so that they should be enabled to get on. Next to salt and air, iron is of more necessity to modern civilization, to the happiness and comfort of mankind, than any substance known to science. The price of iron affects the American settler as much as the price of wheat or corn. Cheap iron means cheapness in transportation, in household furniture, in agriculture. Every now, every new country needs cheap iron, and yet the twenty iron masters in Pennsylvania, in combating for continued duty on foreign iron, virtually, if consistent and sincere, affirm that their mills contribute more to the wealth and prosperity of the country than a railway in Indiana and Kansas. The tax on pig iron is felt to be a tax on every bushel of wheat, upon the labor of every farmer in the West. The plea put up for the iron workers who, when unprotected, would starve in the attempt to puddle iron at small wages is absurd. They would be better employed as cultivators in the new territories. The revenue reformers also ask why should wool be taxed? A speaker at a recent meeting said of this substance, This article enters into the economy of our daily existence so absolutely that every penny put upon it is a tax upon every laboring man who wears a woolen coat or who buys his wife a woolen dress. It is of more importance that the millions of poor laboring men should have cheap clothing than that we should have large herds of sheep, especially as in the progress of national growth, agriculture, agriculture will protect its own sheep growth. The tax upon lumber is virtually an embargo upon our shipping and a hindrance to the social development of our new civilization. Lumber is scant enough in many parts of America. If a farmer builds a house at the base of the Rocky Mountains, he must bring his lumber from Chicago.
In that item alone, transportation is a grievous tax, and when to this we add a protective impost, we put upon the farmer a heavy burden. America wants cheap lumber for the sea, just as she wants cheap iron for the land. Our shipping is dead from the sheer inability of our capitalists to build ships in competition with the builders on the Clyde. It is by some competent authorities considered that this strengthening party will have gained power enough to embarrass the political canvas of 1872. If this is the case, we may expect to see some clear premonitions of the event in the measures of Congress. It is for us to consider whether we should put this experience aside and prepare to buy our own. Historic headlines will return after this brief message. Closes Old Established Grocery Store Opposite the Montour House, Independence, has on hand and daily receiving new goods consisting of teas, sugars, coffees, fancy groceries, crockery, glassware, woodenware, fish of all kinds, everything cheap for cash. Call and see for yourself. Syracuse, salt, always on hand. Farm produce wanted. T.W. Close. May 14, 1869. We now return to our show. So two episodes ago, I started with a couple of Syracuse articles that were assuming a defensive posture against two separate newspapers. They were they were sh- they were clapping back against the Chicago Tribune and the New York World. Now I'm going to share with you the two Chicago Tribune articles that bracket that one defensive riposte to the Tribune. In other words, I'm, f- I'm going to start with the one that the Syrac- Syracuse article from that episode was replying to, and then I'm going to read you the one that the Chicago Tribune posted in reply to that one, along with their reprint of the Syracuse article. So they were gracious enough to to print the Syracuse articles, but they also clapped back at Syracuse's clapback of them. So this is the first one. Uh, Chicago Tribune, Chicago Friday, April 14, 1871. The Salt Combination. Prior to the organization of the company, the salt blocks and fields of New York were held by various individuals, each making salt on his own account. The company leased all the property of these persons at a liberal valuation and contracted to pay the owners 12% on the valuation. The company was then organized upon the basis of a capital stock of $160,000. This was but a few years ago. In a very short time, the stock was watered 100% and again and again watered until it now stands at $1,250,000, of which all but $160,000 is water. In addition to this, there have been cash dividends, making the actual total profits of the company from 1861 to 1871 nearly, if not quite, $3 million. The company has recently united with other salt companies to apportion the sale of salt by each company and to fix the price at which it shall be sold. The prices at which salt is to be sold at several points is thus stated. Cincinnati, Chicago, 
Cleveland, and Detroit. $2 per barrel. Toledo, $2.10. St. Louis, $2.40. Syracuse, $1.75. We suppose that the price at Syracuse is the standard at which salt is to be sold at the place of production, and that the difference between the price at that and other points is to cover freights, agents' commissions, and other charges. The minimum price which the combination, therefore, has established for salt at the works is $1.75 per barrel. The country has lately been flooded with pamphlets prepared by the salt companies in which they undertake to show that unless the tax from of from 108 to 190 percent on foreign salt is continued, salt cannot be made in this country, and that the salt works of the United States must be abandoned, and the capital and labor employed in them must be lost or discharged. The latest publication is made over the signature of J.W. Barker, agent of the Onondaga Company, who maintains that salt cannot be made and sold at less than 23.5 cents per bushel. This cost includes dividends upon the $1,250,000 of watered stock. But... Assuming that the cost of producing the salt is 23.5 cents per bushel, a barrel of salt costs $1.16.5. Thus, this the company propose, by their combination, shall not be sold at the works for less than $1.75, which is a profit of 50%. The production of salt at the Onondaga Works in 1860 was 8,662,237 bushels, equal to 1,752,445 barrels. A profit of 58 cents per barrel on this amount of salt would make the profit of a single year over $1 million, which would be a handsome return on a capital of $160,000. If the company can afford, in 1871, to sell salt at $1.75 per barrel and make over $1 million profit in the year, the public may form an idea of what the profit has been when they sold their salt at Syracuse at prices ranging from $2 to $2.20 per barrel. The cost of $0.23 per bushel covers all expenses, including interest, rents, etc., In the face of the public demand for a repeal of the tax, the salt companies propose to make a concession so as to sell salt at the place of manufacture for 88 cents per bushel. At the same time, the salt of the world can be delivered in New York or Montreal, Baltimore, New Orleans, and every other Atlantic port, including freight, premium, on gold, and all other charges for 22 cents per bushel. The simple question is, shall the people tax themselves to pay the New York Salt Company 38 cents per bushel for salt at Syracuse when they can get it for 22 cents at any seaport? The total consumption of salt, foreign and domestic, in the United States in 1870 was about 83 million bushels. The tax of 16 cents per bushel on this amount is $5,280,000, of which the government only receives $1,500,000. Suppose it costs 50 cents per bushel to produce salt at Syracuse. Should the public be taxed to enable that company to collect 80 cents when salt can be obtained for 22 cents? Is it any part of the duty of the government to tax the people to pay dividends of 
80 or 90% or any other sum on $1 million of watered stock of a private corporation in the state of New York? A striking case of the oppression of this tax on salt is furnished by the case of California and the other Pacific states. In the Gulf of California, in Mexican waters, there is an island upon which salt in unlimited quantities and of pure quality can be obtained for the cost of putting it on the vessel and transporting it to San Francisco. But the people of California have to pay a tax of 18 cents in gold per hundred pounds for all of this salt they import, when they ought to have it for about one cent per bushel. But that the Onondaga Salt Company may have its 100 percent on its watered stock, the people of California have to pay this enormous tax. Historic headlines will return after this commercial message. C.J. Stevens, dealer in agricultural implements, is agent for sweepstakes, threshers, Haynes, Illinois harvesters, marsh harvesters, buckeye reapers and mowers, New Yorker, self-rake reapers and mowers, the justly celebrated Esterly Cedar, Keystone Corn Planter, Hawkeye Riding Cultivator, Eagle Iron Beam, and John Deere's Walking Cultivators. John Deere's Plows of all kinds, and a full variety of other implements of which I have selected as being first class in every respect, and the best in the market, for I wish to sell none but the best. I also keep on hand Blossberg Coal, Onondaga and Saginaw salt, and Sea Gray's Indian Town flour. Before purchasing elsewhere, call and examine my stock at the depot, Orford, Iowa. We now return to our show. So that last article from the Chicago Tribune was published on April 14th. Go back to episode 27 to listen to the Syracuse article in response to that article. And now here is the Chicago Tribune article from April 29th replying to that one from Syracuse. The tax on salt. We print a letter from the salt company of Onondaga on the salt tax. The letter states the present attitude of that company. In the article referred to by the company, we took the statement, as we found it, that the cost of producing a bushel of salt was 23.5 cents. That statement was made by the company. The company now declared that this cost is for the loose salt and includes no allowance for barrels, packing, or interest on capital. The company, by its own showing, is now consuming its own capital rapidly. It manufactures 9 million bushels, or 1,860,000 barrels annually. Taking the amount, taking the account, as now furnished by the company, they are doing business after the following fashion. Cost, 1,800,000 barrels salt at $1.18, 2,134,000. 1,800,000 barrels at 50 cents, uh, 981,000. Interest on uh, $5,000, $5 million capital at 10%, uh, 90,000. 
commission to agents, 10 cents per barrel, 180,000. Salaries and miscellaneous expensive expenses, uh, 60,000. Total cost, 3,508,000. Receipts, 1,800,000 barrels of salt at Syracuse at $1.75, 3,150,000. Actual loss to company, $634,000. That, too, under a protective tariff of from 108 to 190%. The company does not propose to stop business. It is determined to persevere and supply the country with cheap salt delivered at Syracuse at 35 cents per bushel. All it demands for delivering salt at the low price of 35 cents per bushel is that Congress will not remove the tax and thus permit the public to buy foreign salt in New York, Montreal, Baltimore, and New Orleans at an average cost, freight included, of 20 cents per bushel in currency. The company deserve credit for the sacrifice they are making. Corporations do not often voluntarily sacrifice $700,000 a year for the mere purpose of furnishing the public with a cheap commodity. But whether the salt company makes or loses money is of no more concern to the great public than whether Farmer Jones can raise cocoa nuts at a profit in Maine. Taxes can honestly be laid for no other purpose than to support government. If the Onondaga Salt Company cannot make salt and sell it at a profit, why should the 38 millions of people in this country be taxed for the benefit of that company? But it now appears from the companies showing that they are losing over $600,000 per annum. Thus, after having subjected the people to a tax of perhaps $6 million to protect the salt makers, those unfortunate persons are losing from 20 to 25% of their capital annually. Notwithstanding the repeated declaration that the loose salt costs 23.5 cents per bushel at the works, independent of all interest on capital, we must express our inability to understand why the cost is so high. The company have a supply of coal at cheap rates, owing, we believe, their owning, we believe, their own coal mine. The company was organized in 1860 with a cash capital of $160,000. Their own, their only expense for brine, inspection, weighing, branding, and for construction and repairs of conduits, buildings, and machinery is a tax to the state of one cent per bushel, or $90,000 a year. From the sworn statement of Mr. Barker, made in October, 1867, published in Commissioner Wells's report, we learn that the actual capital was $160,000, and that up to 1867, the company had divided among the stockholders $2 million, had $600,000 surplus then on hand, and had accumulated property to the value of $4,498,969. In these years in which this immense profit was made, the amount of salt produced was much less than it is now. But we think, upon investigation, that the cost of making salt at Syracuse is largely made up of the fictitious price of coal. The Onondaga Salt Company own or control their own coal mine. The coal they use costs them precisely what it costs to mine and deliver the coal at their works. But the company, mining and delivering its coal, say at 100, 
$1.20 per ton can and possibly does sell it to the Onondaga Salt Company at $4.50 per ton, charging the difference to the cost of making the salt. The Onondaga Salt Company has the good sense to admit that the cost of production of salt has been increased by the general protective tariff and that, under general free trade, their profits, if less in nominal amount, would be greater in fact. The company is right in demanding that if the tariff protective tax be taken off salt, it shall be taken off of all other protected articles. But because the tax on woolen goods is excessive, that furnishes no reason for continuing a like tax on salt. If we can repeal the tax on salt, which seems to be inadequate to save the Onondaga Company from heavy loss, then we shall have that company arrayed with us, and demanding the repeal of every other tax which yields no revenue. That company has divided among its corporations, among its corporators, on an original cash capital of $160,000 over $3 million in 10 years, and amassed several millions of property. The tax on salt has not been repealed, it still stands at an average of 120%. But the company proposes to make up its regular dividends by reducing the wages of its laborers. The holders of its watered stock must have their dividends. Though the tariff on salt has not been reduced, they propose to reduce wages 15%. We are invited to compare the price of salt in 1871 with the price in 1860, when the duty was only 15%. The price of salt in 1860 in all the markets of the world was as high relatively as it is in the United States now. But is that any reason for maintaining the former price permanently in the United States when it has fallen everywhere else? The production and consumption of salt have increased, and the price everywhere outside of the United States has been reduced. For what reason must the American people be punished by making them pay for salt 100% more than it is offered for elsewhere? Historic headlines will be right back. J.E. Nye, dealer in choice family groceries and provisions, Turks Island, Liverpool, Derry, and Table Salt, country produce bought and sold. And we're back. I'm going to leave you with a sort of response to the first article that I read. I say sort of response because it was actually published a couple of days earlier. Uh, this is from the Tama County Republican of uh, Toledo, Iowa, Thursday, May 18th, 1871. And... Whereas the original article was more or less a recasting of Brinkerhoff's speech by a writer who agreed with him, this is in an opposing newspaper uh, arguing with and making fun of Brinkerhoff's harangue, as they call it. Brinkerhoff's harangue. The free trade missionary, General Brinkerhoff, sent out among the savages of the West by New York importers, 
who have a perfect hate for American manufacturing because it prevents them from importing the articles made, to show us the beauties of free trade, spoke the piece he has spoken a thousand times before and will keep right on speaking so long as those importers will pay him for it, at Ham's Hall last week, Tuesday evening. As it was the night of our publication, we were too busy to hear him, but go to the report made for the press, which of course does him no injustice. The reporter starts out by saying there was a large audience. We have heard several who were there say that there were not two dozen in the hall besides students. Our town people let him alone severely. Even the Democrats refused to attend, although so fiercely urged by the press. The highest estimate we have heard put upon the audience was 100. So it will be seen the reporter was disposed to be very favorable to the speaker. He repeated the stale assertion that the tariff is simply a tax. This absurdity these men keep on repeating, although it has been disproved a thousand times, but they will continue to repeat it all the same. He complains that we tax so many articles, over 4,000, he says. We do not believe any such number are taxed, for the last Congress increased the free list very largely, and the next will increase it still more. During the war, we were obliged to raise revenue wherever we could. Now we are simplifying our revenue system and reducing the number of sources as fast as we can. He said, it is a rule to which the exceptions are few that whenever a duty is levied upon an article which we import and also make at home, we enhance the price both of the imported article and that produced at home. This rule will be found strictly true of the great staples lumber, coal, iron, salt, etc. This rule will generally hold good on the first imposition of such duty, but results in cheapening both the foreign and home manufacturers to compete with the foreign, and we are confident we are today obtaining all the above articles cheaper than we would do had there never been any protection. He said further, quote, Two million tons of pig iron were consumed in this country last year, on which the people paid 18 millions of dollars tax, one million of which went into the treasury and the rest into the pockets of the iron masters. On the three items of pig bar and railroad iron, we pay annually 45 millions of dollars, of which five millions reach the treasury. Pennsylvania get the rest. So with the tariff on leather. Unquote. We think he has that only half large enough. We think there were full four million tons of pig iron consumed in the country last year, the majority of which was produced in this country. He claims that his home product cost the consumers the amount of the duty more than the same quantity of imported iron would have done. Suppose we had called on foreign iron masters for this immense amount of pig iron. Does any man in his senses suppose it would not have enhanced the price of it? Let our production of iron be cut off, and what airs the foreign iron matters would put on. Prices of their products would advance at once, and soon we would be paying them more than we now pay our home producers, and be obliged to send our agricultural products or drain our country of its gold to pay for it. But this very desirable result for the owners of Mr. Brinkerhoff would be obtained.
they would have the importation of the iron and the exportation of our products and pay for it. And that is what they want and seek to attain at whatever cost to other interests. But here comes a stunner to us from General Brinkerhoff's harangue. Quote, the Republican in Iowa City had recently quoted a statement that the effect of the tariff has been to cheapen salt and enable it to be sold cheaper than in 1860. That statement was simply false, as the speaker proceeded to prove by quoting from market reports showing that salt was now double what it was in 1860. As with salt, so with iron and many other articles, the effect has been to send prices to the moon. End quote. In opposition to this positive statement, we place the statement of Honorable George Geddes, superintendent for the state of New York of the Onondaga Salt Springs, made to the New York Tribune January 6, 1871, an official statement from a man who knew just what he was talking about, put before the world in the most widely circulated paper in the country more than four months ago, and stands as yet uncontradicted. We make the following extracts. In 1860, there was no domestic salt for sale in your city, but foreign salt sold for 23 cents per bushel, in money as good as gold. In 1870, both foreign and domestic salt sold in New York at 20 cents in gold and in currency at less than salt sold for in 1869 in gold. So it appears that the consumer buys for less in your city than he did before the Onondaga salt went into your market. Can any reasonable man suppose that if our two million bushels were to be withdrawn from your market, the importers of salt would not go back to their old prices and even to higher ones? In 1860, salt was worth in Cleveland, Ohio, per measured bushel in gold, 40 cents. In 1870, 33 uh, and a half cents. In Toledo, in 1850, 40 cents. In 1870, 29 and one, one and a half cent, one to five cents. Uh, Detroit, in 1860, 41 cents. In 1870, uh, 32 and four fifths cents. Chicago, in 1860, 42 cents. In 1870, 31 cents. And in Boston, the other extreme of the market, it was worth, in 1860, 25 cents. In 1870, 23 cents. Mr. Geddes put this statement into the faces of the New York Free Trade League more than four months ago, and they have never questioned it in public. But this blatherskite, whom they send out, says, when no one has a chance to refute it, that our statement that salt was reduced in price under protection was simply false, that salt has really doubled in price since 1860. We leave our readers to judge which makes the false statement. He said, farther, everything has doubled in price from a ten-penny nail to a trip hammer. It cost twice as much to build a house as it did ten years ago because this tariff has raised the price of everything that enters into it, lumber, iron of all kinds, paints, oils, etc. We leave that statement to every man who knows anything of the facts. It is a most outrageous assertion. In fact, his harangue was made up of false statements and false theories until he had found to his own satisfaction that we are the most terribly oppressed and suffering people on earth. And then he came down to the remedy as follows. The remedy for present evils 
lies in taxing a few leading articles. Let the duty on tea, coffee, sugar, molasses, spices, fruits, wines, and spirits, tobacco, glass, silk, linen, tin, furs, gloves of skin, nuts, sardines, chocolate, and opium be retained. Millions for revenue, not one cent for protection, is the free trader's motto. Let the tariff then be put only upon the articles we do not produce at home and upon them only for revenue. We are glad to have him put down his platform so squarely. This is easily understood and is exactly the reverse of those who believe government have something more to do than merely to raise money enough to pay its officials. The protectionists would levy no duty on articles of necessity, which we do not produce, which duty is a tax simply, and, as such, a most unjust one, because it bears unequally on men in proportion to their ability to pay, and would levy it on articles we can produce, and thus encourage their production at home, thereby enlarging our resources, increasing our wealth, furnishing our laborers with employment, giving a home market to our farmers, thus making us a self-sustaining people. But Home manufacturers are the objects of the special spite of the New York shippers, as they do not have the carrying to and fro between the producers and consumers. But hear him again. Quote, We raise one-fourth too much revenue anyway. Twenty-five millions per annum is enough to pay up on the principal of the debt. We are now bleeding the people to death to pay one hundred million per year. End quote. All this trouble comes from that rascally Grant, who will persist in collecting the revenue with great faithfulness and in reducing expenses, so that although Congress has reduced the sources of revenue, time and again, all that it dared to, the debt continues to melt away, much to the grief of Mr. Brinkerhoff and his Democratic allies. The Senate, before its late adjournment, directed its Committee on Finance, of which Senator Sherman is chairman, to overhaul the entire revenue system, Sim simplify and reduce taxes as far as possible, and with the experiences we have now had with General Grant's faithfulness and success in managing our finances, very great changes can and will be made, not simply in the interest of the New York importers, but in the interest of the great mass of the American people. They will be made with a view to sustain home production, reward labor, thus inviting foreigners to continue to flock to us, provided a home market for our farmers, thereby inducing the settlement of our waste places to continue the development of our wonderful resources and to make us emphatically an independent nation. In short, these changes will be made in the interests of the United States instead of those in Europe. Iowa City Republican, May 10th. 1871. Hugh here. I'm not even going to pretend to understand a lot of that. I never had a head for economics, so a lot of that is above my head. Um, I welcome any recapitulation, summary, clarification that anyone wants to give me. Again, go to the show notes, check out all these articles, uh, it might be easier for you to understand what's going on if you uh, follow along. It's it's for sure going to be easier if you if you read the articles and see the actual typeset as you follow along. So, 
I hope that despite my limited understanding of the actual uh, economical uh, uh, mechanics of this conversation that I've laid out for you, that I've at least conveyed my sense of the overwhelming importance of this free trade versus protection ideological axis within the minds and the self-identification and the politics of the era. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he's stolen away.